Wan Nataprila with his Shura's Suta, the drocht of March hath pierced to the Ruta, and bathed every vein in switch liqueur, of which virtue engendered is the fleur. Welcome to A Beginner's Guide to Chaucer, a podcast series that offers the beginner an insight into the life and times of English writer Geoffrey Chaucer and why his most notable work, The Canterbury Tales, still has relevance today. My name is Karen Carey, and I'll be chatting with Marion Turner, the J.R.R. Tolkien Professor of English Literature and Language here at the University of Oxford. In this final episode, we talked to Professor Marion Turner about Chaucer's legacy and what resources might be available to help with future study. So, Marion, what do you think has been Chaucer's main influence on the writers and poets that have come since him? I think it's really impossible to understand later English literature without understanding Chaucer because we simply see him everywhere. So all of Shakespeare's plays are influenced by Chaucer. Midsummer's Night's Dream is fundamentally influenced by, say, the Knight's Tale, but also, many have argued, by the whole concept of the Canterbury Tales. Um, when we get to, say, Dryden, he's translating lots and lots of little bits of Chaucer. T.S. Eliot, The Wasteland, you know, it, it opens with April is the cruelest month. You need to know that that is inverting the opening line of the Canterbury Tales to grasp what Eliot is doing with the canon, with the history of English literature. When we get right up to the present day, you know, Zadie Smith is profoundly influenced by Chaucer and is translating his text. So in every era we see Chaucer's influence really, you know, right out there. And, you know, it, it's really hard to think of anyone who's had a comparable influence on such a range of authors across time and indeed around the world. You know, he's been translated into hundreds of different languages and has, has had a really global influence. You mentioned in the uh, episode we did on, on the language, you know, how has that impacted on the development of English language? I mean, he's, he's talked of being as the, the father of, of, of English. Uh, uh, so how do you think that's impacted? Um, mm. Yeah, I mean, I think the idea of, of Chaucer as the father of English literature is something which has in some ways hampered him. I think that that comes about um, very much after his death when people wanted to kind of praise him as a great authoritative figure. But for many people, that then made him sound a bit boring. You know, this kind of authoritative, serious, patriarchal figure. Whereas in actual fact, he's an experimental poet. He's an innovator. He's rude. He's cheeky. He's all kinds of, of different things which people don't associate with the father of English literature. And I think there were two eras when that father of English literature really got going. So you see it in early prints where, I mean, Chaucer, you, The Canterbury Tales is the first major text to be printed in English. You know, Caxton prints The Canterbury Tales and then lots and lots of other printers print versions of The Canterbury Tales. He's the first vernacular author to be given a works. So he was printed as the works of Geoffrey Chaucer in the 16th century. Before that, the word works, oeuvre, had only been given to classical Latin poets. In a very famous late 16th century edition, there's a picture of Chaucer 
big full page picture of Chaucer looking very boring. And at the top, it says the progeny of Geoffrey Chaucer, the children of Geoffrey Chaucer. Down one side is his family tree. Down the other is the royal family tree down to Henry VII. Now, he was tangentially connected with them through his sister-in-law, as I talked about in in an earlier episode, but they certainly were not his descendants. But the idea of that image is to construct him as the father of the nation, you know, the father of the monarchy. And that's the kind of image that people had of Chaucer. When you get to Victorian times, this idea of Chaucer the patriarch, again, is really, really important. And lots of Victorian editors write about him as saying, that, saying, for example, that he's an author that should be sent off across the hemispheres, that he's an imperial figure. They write, Godwin writes that he, um, you know, was a great person for Edward III to talk to when he was weighed down with concerns of empire, for example. Victorian editor Furnival talks about him as if he were a Victorian schoolboy and writes this extraordinary section in an introduction to Chaucer's works where he emphasises that Chaucer was a great footballer. I mean, absolutely no evidence for this. But the idea is to turn him into a kind of Victorian figure that people can relate to as a great Victorian, you know? So and he says, you know, unfortunately, people didn't know cricket then, but he was great at football and hockey. It's all total nonsense. And so people try and turn Chaucer into a, a figure that they can connect to and a figure of a certain kind of maleness and often a, cer- a figure of a certain kind of, of Englishness. And that's sometimes done him a real disservice, I think, because it does shut off all these really interesting things about him, which are that he was edgy, he was experimental, he was original and innovative. All those kinds of things can get forgotten. I think what people don't realise, he was actually a working man who just did this as a bit of a hobby, really. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something which is, I think, really, you know, exciting people today to realise, you know, that this was not someone who was in an ivory tower, who was being paid by a prince just to write poetry in some kind of pastoral idyll. You know, he wasn't like that at all. There he was, you know, fighting in a war, riding to Italy twice, you know, across the mountains, um, you know, being taken prisoner, working in the customs house, going and actually looking at the 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 makeup of buildings and working out what needed more scaffolding and what needed rebuilding. Those were the things that he was doing. And then he wrote because he really, you know, desired to write, needed to write. That was part of his character, his personality. It was it was who he was. So that idea that he was someone who really believed in poetry as something essential to, you know, to his soul, to his being, I think is very, very inspirational. But it's also, you know, for many people, accessible then to think of him as someone who was you know from a relatively ordinary background you know I mean very privileged of course but you know not a duke not a prince nothing like that he needed to work and he did work in all kinds of jobs some of which were probably quite boring there's one poem where in the house of fame where he writes about himself as doing accounts all day and then trudging home at night and sitting at his at his desk in his room and he's you know he's sitting there dumb as any stone trying to find inspiration but so tired but he wants to write but he, and then the person he's talking to says well go to your door listen to your neighbours you know don't just sit there with your old books go and get inspiration from the world around you and of course that is exactly what Chaucer did he read all the books really all the books but he also got inspiration from the world around him and that's something that I think it's one of the reasons why people have gone on 
being so inspired by him today because while in the in some parts of the past you know people liked this kind of authoritative serious Chaucer now people are very inspired by the idea of someone who did get his hands dirty who was doing all kinds of different things in his life and that's very appealing to people so if you're studying Chaucer today um, and you know you've been inspired by all of these wonderful things that you you said over the last few episodes um, where do you think people should go uh, to look for look out for, for for new material? I mean, there's been lots of sort of films made of, of the Canterbury Tales yeah. and various other uh, other works, you know, animations, uh, things on YouTube and things like that. What what do you really recommend mm. people look at? So I really like the animated Canterbury Tales that were made um, just before 2000, so about 25 years ago. That that kind of time by Jonathan Myerson. Um, we're actually showing some of those in the Chaucer exhibition that I've curated. You can put on the headphones and watch a couple of them. I think that one thing I really like about those is that the different animations use different um, different animation techniques, different visual techniques. And that seems to me to be a lovely mirror of the different styles of the Canterbury Tales, which I, I think is very clever. Um, I think the BBC adaptations of the Canterbury Tales are quite loose adaptations, but but interesting, you know, very interesting. You know, things like The Man of Law's Tale, which becomes a story about um, a Nigerian refugee who arrives in a small boat. I mean, in Chaucer's version, it is about a woman in a small boat who's sent first to a Muslim kingdom of Syria and then to Northumberland and does arrive in a boat. So it's quite close, but it puts it very much into a contemporary context. I hate Pasolini's version um, because Pasolini is so one note. I think he's quite misogynist and also only focused on the body and sex. So it's a real travesty of the variety of Chaucer's tales, of, of Chaucer's aesthetic vision, which is about diversity, as I keep saying. But so Pasolini, I personally would always give a miss to. Um, in terms of what people might also like to to read, I mean, there are so many really interesting adaptations. Um, I, I do. I mean, some of them are, are loosely connected, but still very interesting. So, say Marilyn Nelson, Marilyn Nelson's *The Cachoeira Tales*, um, which is a an American um, poem, which is loosely inspired by the Canterbury Tales, but not very close to it. In contrast, Patience Agbagbi's *Telling Tales*. Close to the Canterbury Tales, but puts e and tells all of them, each one in a different poetic genre. I mean, incredibly clever. So one is a kind of crown of sonnets. One is a mirror poem. One is in texting language. I mean, they're so clever. And again, really great to listen to if you find some recordings of Patience Like Bagby on YouTube. She's brilliant. Um, I do think Zadie Smith's Wife of Wilsdon is a great adaptation of The Wife of Bath. I mean, there are lots of interesting adaptations across time. Um, I think hers is very good. It um, makes Alison, the Wife of Bath, into Alvita, a, a 21st century woman from northwest London. Her tale is no longer set in Arthurian Britain. It's set in Jamaican sugar plantations in communities of, um, in, in maroon communities, so of freed slaves. So it's it's very, very interesting in terms of what it's, what it's saying about relevance, about the different kinds of histories that remain relevant to us today. So, you know, for, for me as someone who is, is British and lives and works here, you know, that those, those histories of slavery as well as the history of Chaucer, of Arthurian Britain, these are all relevant to our current identities. And there doesn't have to be a conflict between which of these histories is relevant. They're all relevant to us today. And Chaucer, for many people, is a way into that, that sense of so many different writers from different backgrounds today are using Chaucer as a way of thinking 
globally of thinking about all kinds of aspects of our history and our literature. One other example I might just mention is the Refugee Tales Project, where refugees tell their stories while on the pilgrimage walk. And many of our many current contemporary famous um, writers write up those stories in a Canterbury Tales format. And that's another really interesting example of how Chaucer's poetry has been influential on very um, contemporary, very much contemporary writing, but also contemporary politics, thinking about travel, about diaspora, about the countryside, about moving through our own landscape. All of those things are still of great interest to people today. And the Canterbury Tales is a way to access that. That's brilliant. And just to wrap up then, what advice would you give anybody who's maybe a little bit nervous about approaching, you know, Chaucer and, and the language and the tales? You know, what advice would you give them to sort of try and break through those barriers? I think I would first of all say that lots of the stories that Chaucer is telling are familiar to you and are relevant to us today. They are things that you will be interested in. I would also say the opposite that some of the great pleasure of reading Chaucer is to challenge yourself to enter into a different world, to think about what it meant to live in a very different way, to to, to find it hard, to, you know, to, to read genres that are unfamiliar and about attitudes to life that are unfamiliar and that that's a that's a good thing sometimes it's a good thing when things aren't not only the language but also the content when it isn't all easy because that means that you're you're learning and developing intellectually so you know both the sense of it's not that harder when it is hard stick with it because that's a good thing and I think more pragmatically again it really does depend on what you want to do and why you're doing it so either you Go for the Middle English. Don't be scared. Don't expect to understand everything straight away. Stick with it. Or go for an adaptation. Start with that. If that's what you want to do, that's absolutely fine. You need to start with Patience Agbagby or Zadie Smith or start with the David Wright translation. And then when you feel more confident that you know the content, then progress on to the Middle English. Whatever way you want to do it is absolutely fine because you know Chaucer himself was so interested in a variety of readers. You know, I mean he one of the things he says a lot is um diverse folk, diversely they said. You know, different people react to things differently. So go for it in whatever way you want to. You have been listening to a beginner's guide to Chaucer. You can listen to other episodes in this series on the University of Oxford's podcast site or on Apple Podcasts. If you would like to learn more about Professor Marion Turner's work on Chaucer, then please follow the link in the description. Thank you for listening.